welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about how we might have more humane and emotionally intelligent public conversations with people different from ourselves. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Tamandra Harkness. Tamandra is a writer, broadcaster, and comedian. She presents the BBC Radio 4 series Future Proofing, and an upcoming series also on Radio 4 about how to disagree well. She's the author of the book Big Data Does Size Matter and works with Cheltenham Science Festival and the Royal Statistical Society, amongst others, on maths and science communication. I spoke to her about why she is an atheist but cautious about calling herself a humanist, why humour can help us disagree better and why she thinks we don't need to be too worried about the rise of AI. I hope you enjoy listening. Tamandra, I'm going to ask the question which I'm now feeling terrible that I didn't pre-warn you about like I normally do, which is what do you hold sacred? Is there a value or a principle that is very defining in your life that if someone tried to offer you money to give up, you would have quite an instinctively strong negative reaction to that? The big answer, I think, is is people, is other human beings. Well, no, all human beings, actually, including me. And the fact that people should be an end in themselves and not a means to somebody else's end. And I suppose tied up with that is that people should have their own freedom to decide for themselves about their lives, yeah. uh, even if I might look at those decisions and go, ooh, mate, are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not to say I wouldn't try and talk somebody out of a really bad decision, but that ultimately I think it's for people to uh, determine their own lives and it's not up to anyone else to say, well, we can sacrifice you for a greater cause. That's that's the big answer. But the question about what would I not accept money for is interesting because I suppose for me in the way I live my life, it's not saying things that I don't mean. And I'm not going to hold my hand up and say, I always say everything I mean because like everybody else, I sometimes go... That's not the battle I'm going to have today. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to walk past that Take parapet, that yeah, and stick my head over a different parapet. I'm like, I don't have to have every battle all the time, but I don't say things that I don't mean because I kind of feel like, well, if you're going to give that up, then what's the point of any of it? Yeah. That so I suppose yeah, those two things that human beings and their right to determine their own lives and saying what I mean yeah integrity I yeah I, I, I joke sometimes I go well you know all I have really is my integrity so if I sell that what what am I going to sell next time in the precarious age that, uh, that'll be the currency of the economy um I'm going to take an unexpected for me sideswerve because I'm fascinated by human beings and I wanted to ask if you know really what your anthropology is what what do you, how do you define a human do you know what you mean when you say uh, this is this is what i mean by human beings and and i should say i've been thinking about this cuz well for lots of reasons i feel like it's one of the central questions of our time but i've been reading a book recently which was comparing um theological anthropologies with more philosophical anthropologies sort of traits based anthropologies you know that a human is someone who has these traits with more biological anthropologies that a human being is someone who has this dna and most people don't think like that but you strike me as someone who might at least have given it some pondering. I've slightly been forced to address this question a few times, partly because I spend a lot of time these days talking about artificial intelligence and, and robot. And the question arises, well, you know, if an artificial intelligence could do this, then would it be a person and would you have to give it legal rights? Uh, and then 
similarly, but in a different direction, I suppose, I've uh, been thinking about animals in relation to humans and made a future-proofing radio program on the future of animals, which raised this question of, well, what is the divide between humans and animals? Is the one? Or should we actually start to think of them as pretty much the same as us? So, so yeah, I have been forced to think about this a bit. And I suppose... I don't know, the traits-based thing is interesting because I suppose by that you mean things like, do you have language? Are you self-aware? Can you... It's usually kind of reason and, um, yeah, consciousness, those kind of... I mean, different philosophers have different lists, so it's quite hard hard to compare. And some of them are very short and some of them are very long. Um, But, yeah, if you you can do or you have the ability to do these things or think this way, then you would count as a human being. Yeah, I suppose that is my my basis that it comes down to things like consciousness by but i think it has to be more than just a awareness of the world around you because obviously all animals have that and the higher animals have a sense of themselves interacting with the world and can learn and can even seem to have some awareness of the motivations of others in in quite basic ways so i think it has to be a much more of an awareness of oneself as being separate from the world and maybe a sense of past and future and an ability to imagine other possible worlds, which is something that I don't think other animals share. Mm. And certainly there's no artificial intelligence that's anywhere close to that. And I don't, I, I'm one of the people that thinks the singularity, the machine that's brighter than us, is centuries away, if ever, because right. I just think that human thought is so complex and multi-layered that we can model a tiny bits of it, yeah. like playing chess or Go. But the idea that a machine would think like us and would do all the different layers of things that we do where we're going around feeling vaguely guilty about something we did and also trying to remember what we were going to buy at the shops and remembering what order to get dressed in and listening to the radio and shouting at somebody on the radio and doing all those things at once and also physically operating the world. I think we're a very long way off that from machines. One would hope so, I think, (laughs) unless you're a sort of very optimistic transhumanist and think uh, AI is going to save us or indeed become a god as we uh, will you may have heard on Chamander's wonderful program um future proofing about faith and if not hopefully the BBC haven't taken it off iPlayer yet I'm trying to crystallize this thought but being as this podcast is about our public conversations it strikes me that how we conceive of the human is present and yet absent in some of many of our more fractious anxiety-producing tribalisms that we have and debates about the economy now do often have this element of what do we, you know, what what is the role of AI? Will there be rights? What about the rights of those whose jobs will be taken away? How do we balance that the kind of dignity of work with convenience and all those things? And then more broadly and perhaps more immediately painfully, I see it very clearly in the refugee conversations and I'm sort of being cautioned not to call it a refugee crisis by those working in uh, refugee um and I, w- I want to say adversary, but I don't mean that. I mean, advocacy, that's it. Uh, refugee advocacy work, because it sounds like the refugees themselves are the crisis, whereas actually there's a, a broader kind of world challenge. But, you know, Trump recently has uh, started speaking of migrants as like insects and infestation and those kind of things. Do you, as someone who is at least very philosophically literate, see any way that we could illuminate or inject into the public debates that 
I think, missing ingredient of wait, 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 wait. <laughs> you know, what's important here is who are human beings and what what um, rights and responsibilities do they have and do we have to each other? Oh, hit me with the big questions. Sorry. Why don't you? No, I mean, I completely think you're right. I think the ability to see each other all as human beings and to appreciate that every person's life is as valuable to them as mine is to me is really key. Thinking about what gets in the way of that, I think one of the things is fear and that people people who react against the idea of lots of migrants coming into their country and needing help tend not to be motivated, I think, by just hostility to them randomly or because they're from a different country, but because they have this fear that their own, the things that they hold sacred, if you like, are going to be threatened. So their family may be threatened either just by competition for housing or a health service or education or whatever, or, I mean, in some cases, the, the, the fear that migrants bring crime is whipped up, which... I mean, there is there is no statistical basis for absolutely, but all you need is somebody to drop in the the hint of this, and then a couple of examples, and then that becomes a a fear stalking people's minds. And I I do understand that if people have if people have families or themselves feel vulnerable, then somebody suggesting to you that this is going to make put you in more danger is going to predispose you to be to be hostile. And I think. But but you're right. I think I think the dehumanising aspect is very worrying because then it is much easier to accept that terrible things might happen to these people if you don't really think of them as as people. And that I think is one of the good things about uh, coverage and stories and so on that see things from the point of view of other people that you can actually go yes no if I if I was them and in their shoes then obviously I would feel like this. And then that makes you a bit more inclined, hopefully, to see them as a human being. We're going to take a brief break to catch up with what's going on with the Theos team. One of the questions I get asked the most by people outside the London world of ideas or the Westminster bubble is what? is a think tank. What do you do? There's often gags made about sitting in a tank and thinking, which is obviously hilarious. But the concept of thinking and how we reflect, how we form our ideas, how we change our minds, how we engage with the world is something really central to our work and that we think and talk about a lot as a team. And I'm here with our researcher, Nathan Mladen, who has been reading a book to help us think about thinking. Nathan, tell me about it and perfectly timely book, which I've read recently and reviewed for our website. It's called How to Think. Title always kind of uh, gets on my nerves a bit because it sounds a bit patronizing, but I guess uh, when you read it and it's quite short, um, you discover that it's actually not patronizing at all. It's actually very much needed in our context. So it's called How to Think, but it really gets interesting with the subtitle uh, because in the UK, the subtitle is a guide for the perplexed, whereas the subtitle for the US version is a survival guide for a world at odds. And I mean, who wouldn't agree that Britain is a perplexing context in which to do some proper, serious uh, thinking? And who wouldn't agree that the US is not a world at odds? Now, it indicates to me that there's an American title. Perhaps this guy is not speaking from a UK perspective. Who is he? 
No, so he is Alan Jacobs, and he's professor of humanities at at Baylor University in the states, in in Texas. Um, so he's written uh, various books, kind of in the uh, English lit primarily, but all sorts of critical essays. He's, I think he's one of the most um, fair minded and and sober and creative uh, voices in the kind of the the Christian cultural uh, space in the states. And I think he's someone worth listening to. And he writes, I believe, on literary criticism and English, which is new, I think, in this field of reflecting on how we think and critical thinking, a slightly different perspective. Uh, Yes, Uh, he's someone, obviously, who values serious uh, thinking and and. I think looks around him and sees a lot of what kind of passes and looks like thinking, but is probably um, something else, sort of groupthink uh, and and um, opinions which are sort of half formed, half baked. Um, so he's quite keen to recover uh, the portrait of a thinking person. So this is not really so much a manual. So this is where the title is deceptive in a sense. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. That would be way too simplistic. It's trying to add um, some hope, basically, into a rather bleak genre uh, where you have Jonathan Haidt um, in The right, the right, the Righteous Mind, you have uh, Daniel Kahneman, and a host of other books that are kind of showing us just how uh, biased and how uh, screwed up uh, we are in our, in our thinking, what kind of errors we're really quite prone to make uh, when we, when we uh, engage in conversation and, and when we try to think. So what from his arguments have really stayed with you? What have you been trying to embody in your own thinking? One of the things that really stood out for me uh, is the way he drew attention to the importance of thinking about our bodies when thinking about thinking, Uh, sort of ironically, being mindful of our bodies. And he says in the absolutely stunning um, thinking person's checklist uh, at the end of the book, uh, this is one of the tips that he gives. When you're tempted to respond to a provocative, um, inflammatory, vexing statement, um, just listen to your body. Um, Be attuned to your body. Are you twitching? Are you tense? Are you um, sweating? Obviously, this works primarily in a social media context, but I think it applies in kind of day-to-day conversations. Be more attuned to your body and listen to what's going on because your body will give you signals that you're probably overly defensive, that you're probably just um, getting ready to to attack and not really listen with charity, with generosity, with patience. And I'm already kind of throwing out the kind of intellectual virtues that he is kind of putting forward as the kinds of things we should be embodying. That's really helpful. It's one of the things that um, I think about a lot is that our fight or flight mechanism is the fact that often when we come across not even proper threat, but just disagreement, someone who says something we don't agree with, because of these things we've discussed, our kind of tribal hardwiring, often we find ourselves flooded with stress hormone. And I have reflected on this much more myself since trying to parent a toddler, because what you're trying to do with a toddler is give them strategies for emotional regulation, give them strategies for uh, getting themselves out of the meltdown in the supermarket where they're kicking off. But I think as adults, we have internal meltdowns in the supermarkets where we're screaming and kicking our arms and legs, which is the absolute worst time to be trying to think rationally, to engage with people who disagree with us. So that take a take a breath. I think one of the things he said that I read in your reviews is get outside, go for a walk, you know, walk it off. <laughs> Do not respond until you have um, calmed down. And I love seeing that very uh, thoughtful, intellectual way of engaging with what is really quite an ancient Christian doctrine about the kind of embodiment of knowledge, something about the incarnation and, our, and creation teaches us about being 
being more at home in our bodies, but saying practically, what does that mean for how we engage in the world? Um, I'm going to go get a copy. You've reminded me that it needs bumping up my reading list. Nathan, thank you so much for talking to me. Now back to our conversation. Uh, I want to wind back a little bit because one of the things we try and do in the podcast is get people not just talking about ideas, but trying to be a bit more vulnerable than perhaps they usually are about their background and uh, a bit more personal about where they've come from and the things that have formed them. But I won't push you too hard. I just want to ask, what were the um, religious or spiritual or indeed philosophical and political ideas in the air when little Tamandra was uh, running around? Where did, where did you grow up and uh, what were those ideas in the air if, if you were conscious of them? I, I mainly grew up in the Cotswolds, in a little village near Stroud. And I suppose it was an odd mixture because at home, there was no religion. Neither of my parents had any faith. And so I never at any point had a belief in any religion. But our primary school teacher, who was from the Welsh Valleys, was uh, loved both, I think, probably both Christianity and music, possibly the music slightly more. So we spent quite a large part of the day uh, singing hymns, doing, I suppose, religious responses, uh, singing little doxologies and singing grace and that kind of thing. Wow. So it was littered through the day. So that was the kind of furniture. And then I was, I was thinking back to what religious education we had at primary school. And basically it was a term's worth every year that followed exactly the same story. And our school was so small that basically there were three when I first went there there were two rooms for infants and juniors and then they must have expanded a little because then they had three rooms infants juniors and something in between so you basically you went through the same material for several years on the run you just you just moved up to a different table and and we started off in the run-up to Christmas with the Christmas story and a nativity play although the teacher got a bit bored of that so we started off with the nativity play or some variant thereon and then in the spring term, we would basically go through the New Testament, finishing up with the the resurrection and what's the um, ascension. ascension and the Pentecost. Yeah, uh, Whitson, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and that and then that was it, and then that was it for the year. So that's basically for us. Ari was well. Yeah, Jesus is born, and here's the life, uh, and then he he's crucified, and then he rises again and goes to heaven, and that's it. So, <laughs> which was. I don't know, limited, I suppose. Certainly absolutely no comparative religion. I learned nothing about other religions until much, much later on. But it did kind of embed it for me in the rhythm of the year. And to this day, I don't feel Christmas is complete unless I go and sing in a carol service, even though I don't, I don't believe any of the religious content. But it's very deeply embedded for me, the feeling that Christmas is a time of new hope, a baby's born and a new world comes into existence. And it's about love and light and sharing the good things. And so I've, I've, I've always felt that, that that's not something that's solely the preserve of Christians. I, I suppose I'm quite a classic Western atheist. That like, Somebody in fact told me recently that I was basically a Protestant atheist because I my kind of a lot of my fundamental beliefs about people and morality really come from the Protestant tradition. Yeah. I just don't have the belief in the deity that's supposed yeah. to be the fundamental spine of that. Would you call yourself a straight atheist, an atheist, well, a Protestant atheist, or uh, a humanist, or a secular? You know, do do you do you self define <laughs> in in any other way? You certainly don't seem to me to be uh, an atheist who's strongly hostile to religion. No, not at all. Um, 
It, no, interesting. I don't usually self-define at all, actually. I mean, you you did hear the future proving on faith, uh, in which I I said, well, I, you know, I'm an atheist. Partly, I think, just to be straightforward with people about where I was coming from, so they didn't feel manipulated or anything. But it's not. I don't. I'm not somebody who needs to go through life going. I'm an atheist because I. I don't know. I mean, it, it's it's kind of embedded in me, I, I suppose. But it's. I don't feel it defines mm. who I am. A humanist, I would say. But even there, I feel a bit squeamish because there are some capital H humanists out there who actually seem to be defined less by how much they love humans and more by how much they hate anyone who has religious belief, and. I I find that a bit sad, really, because, well, a couple of reasons. One is because although I don't share religious belief, I think a lot of good things have come from it. And indeed, humanism as a school of philosophical thought really emerged from Christian, especially Protestant and also Jewish religious thought. So so I think it's stupid to say, oh, we're humanists and all that Christianity is rubbish. It's like, well, where do you think humanism came from? Uh, and also I just think, well, you know, I don't think there's a God, but how would I know? It's a bit arrogant to say, well, I'm telling you, there is nothing beyond this material world that we can measure. Like, well, how would we know if there was? <laughs> if we're talking about a different plane of existence here, uh, I, I don't think I don't really feel qualified to go around telling people whether God does or doesn't exist. Yeah. Uh, my colleague Nick Spencer's done quite a lot of work on humanism and, and the history of atheism, um, and is very committed to the concept of Christian humanism. And I think I'd call myself a Christian humanist, but uh, we 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 know Andrew Copson well from the Humanists UK and um, see each other a lot and have many things that we agree on and many things that we virulently disagree on. And that particular one, I think that you know. Uh, uh, an insistence that humanism is is bigger than just secular humanism. That actually, there's there there can be religious forms of humanism. I think is an important um, thing to keep raising, even though it can make people a bit uncomfortable. I do sometimes find that the people in a room that I am most comfortable with are, in fact, the people with religious faith, because precisely because they have that element of humanism that they can see something more in human beings than just. Uh, bipedal apes that we're not just apes who happen to evolve to be a bit more clever than the other apes that actually we have the potential within us to transcend our animal existence and be more and and yeah and aspire a bit higher and and I don't think you need a faith in an afterlife to to believe that. But I do, as I say, I, I do meet some atheists who they have such a low opinion of humans. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if humanist is the word for you. <laughs> you seem a bit down on your fellow human beings. Uh, I'm going to go and hang out in the corner with the Christians. At least they think I'm redeemable. There, and it comes back to the anthropology question, doesn't it? That if you know, we had a guy called Tom Chivers on who's a who's a friend who will say, you know, he he is trying to be a pure materialist, doesn't believe in free will, you know, and and that I think but I think he would call himself a humanist, although I'd need to check that. But there, there does come a point where the the dignity, and we'll come back to this on AI and intelligence, but the dignity of a of a human being as something worth defending and some sort of special status uh gets harder to defend the further you get into a very, very, very purely physicalist or materialist um, position if you then choose that as your source of your ethics or your metaphysics, I think. Um, but I, I'll keep exploring. Tell me, 
it's all got a bit cosy and I'm too much of a, you know, background in BBC debates to, to, to be into that. But so tell me, what are the things that religious people do or say or act, particularly in public conversations, that you find difficult or that they could improve on? Because, you know, a lot of people listening to this podcast, although not all will have religious faith, and the fact that they're listening makes me think they probably do want to do better and be better, but maybe we don't know how. Wow, um, another huge question. I, I think there's a difficulty with public discourse in general, which is that we're not very ready to accept that whoever's arguing against us has grounds as good to them as our grounds are for us to argue what they argue, that we might we might disagree and we might continue to disagree, but that actually the other person is acting in good faith when they disagree with us. And I think we're all rather guilty of that. I don't think that's unique to people of religious faith at all. But I can imagine that. And I would say I have not encountered this a lot, that people of religious faith might think, well, you know, we're acting on a moral basis and you are acting on a purely selfish, instinctive-driven, immoral basis and therefore our argument's better than yours. Uh, Whereas, you know, I may be... I may not be able to articulate my moral basis as clearly because I'm kind of having to work it out for myself with some bits and bobs I found in the store cupboard. But, <laughs> but yeah, so I think the idea that actually everybody has a moral basis and that, you know, people may even be prepared to change that if if you engage them the right way um, would be a good thing. I, I mean, I really, and I know this is a bit unfashionable now, I have absolutely no problem with people having strong religious beliefs that I don't share and choosing to live their lives by them. Uh, the problem I have, I suppose, is when people feel that because they have those beliefs, that ought to impinge on what I can do uh, above and beyond obvious things like me not murdering them. That's a pretty shared value, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but when, um, I mean... Okay, so the easy the easy thing is the you're offending me because you're not respecting my religious practices or or whatever, and I think I think that's a mistake because I can, it's completely understandable because we live in a world where you're offending me is the go to argument, and it's a much easier argument to make than I think that's wrong. So, I mean, there's the terrible, terrible gay baker cases. I mean, you know, not gay baker cases, you know. Yeah. <laughs> gay cake cases. There's a lovely joke I once heard. This is a complete sidetrack. But um, some actress in a, in a cafe in Covent Garden who's flirting madly with the attractive black waiter uh, throughout the meal. And then when he comes to say, how, how would you like your coffee? She says, oh, I like my coffee like I like my waiters. And he says, I'm sorry, madam, we don't serve gay coffee. <laughs> Which is a bit of a sidetrack. Yeah, so there's those cases where you think, well, this is just terrible on both sides because it really wouldn't hurt you to go and get your wedding cake from someone who's not upset to make it. And it it, probably wouldn't hurt you to make the wedding cake. Uh, Making a cake with a a slogan on it that is directly against what you believe. I mean, actually, you know, if that was me, I think I would say, no, I'm sorry. You know, if you found me, I I can't think of a slogan that I absolutely didn't believe in. and said, you know, make me this cake. Or, you know, in my case, obviously, I'm a journalist. We say, write me this article that says this. I said, well, no, because that's not what I think. So it's, it's a terribly, they're all terribly thorny cases. But I do think that the the argument that I'm offended by this and therefore you shouldn't be allowed to do it is a bad argument. I think the argument that I should be free to draw my own moral lines here and you're preventing me doing that is a much better argument, but harder to make. Um, And I'm sure there are cases where 
the argument really is, look, I don't think you should be doing that. And then we can have an honest argument about it saying, well, but I think I should be doing it. So either you convince me that I shouldn't or you convince society that I should be prevented from doing it or you're just going to have to tolerate it and live with it. But I think I think that's a really tricky thing. And, and I think we're all kind of on the one hand squaring up for needless fights, but on the other hand, unwilling to actually have those fights honestly and say, I think this is wrong. And instead of saying, you're not respecting my identity, yeah. my religion, my yeah, gender, my so. whatever exactly. Um, and I, I do think that's a real mistake because it's a blind alley because in the end we could all just square off into our little corners and say, this is me and how dare you not respect this. It does seem to me that those cases are, you know, I'm probably pushing this too far, but they do seem to be not just clashes of sacred values, but in some ways deliberately clashing sacred values, that people feel like that these things that feel fundamental to their identity um, kind of must vanquish this thing that the other person feels is central to their identity in a way that doesn't... But how are they going to vanquish? This is the thing. It's like, what, what do you want in this situation? Do you want the other person to change their mind and realise that you're right and come over to your point of view. Because if you do, this is not the way to go about it because you're just going to genuinely hurt people's feelings and upset people and give them grounds for saying we're put upon and depressed. Do you want to make a general point that you ought to get fair and equal treatment in society? Well, fair enough, but in that case, you need to really... You really need to pick your grounds very carefully and try and gather widespread support from other people. Because I think if you say to people in the abstract, do you think that everyone should get fair and equal treatment? Most people would say in the abstract, yes, that's what I would want, so that everybody should get fair and equal treatment. So then if you extrapolate from that and say, well, how about this case, which might be one that you personally don't feel comfortable with, then people go, oh, I don't feel very comfortable with that, but I suppose... In the interest of fair and equal treatment, maybe. But if you start by picking a fight with someone saying, yeah. you're disrespecting my identity, yeah. then I don't see how you're getting any closer to any of those things unless what you actually want is to shore up your own identity by yeah, so- play to your tribe, yeah, yeah. And, and then make the other tribe angry. Yeah. And, and if that's what you want, then... Good work. Yeah, it's something that we talk about here a lot because we're trying to sort of cross divides um, and rich about a little bit is that sense of actually any 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 movement that has effectively changed broader opinion or the minds of a particular group, from what I can see, has done it through hard, committed, disciplined, emotionally intelligent engagement. You know, whether that's the civil rights movement being prepared not, you know, to turn the other cheek, literally to not hit back, to continue to speak about loving um, their white oppressors, you know, incredibly radical, difficult, moral work, um, or whether it's, you know, Stonewall and the LGBT liberation movement really just talking about love, talking about people just wanting to love, you know, wanting to build empathy by saying these couples are just like you, you know, trying to find points of commonality rather than points of difference, rather than poking people with a stick to build their rage. And it feels to me like the, the moment that we're in, we've perhaps lost that long game view because we're also triggered partially by the technology that we're using into self-righteous rage as almost as a default state. Is there anything we can do about that? I am asking you big hard questions today. I Well, I think, yeah, broadly, I think there is. I think if we all start to just step back from home and go, what are we trying to achieve here? 
then we will realise that if what you want is to change people's minds and bring more people closer to your position, then you need to start with them where they are and make it easy for them to move. Because that's the other thing, is if you go in confrontational with people, then you make it quite hard for them to shift position because they will naturally be defensive and shore up their position. We all do that. If what you want is to change power relations and to do that you need to get a majority on your side but there's always going to be a majority you don't get well then you need to work out who is that majority but then bear in mind you're gonna to have to live with a minority who, who lose so Terrible. what kind of atmosphere do you want afterwards uh, or are you aiming for a world where you're not going to agree but you can tolerate each other in which case that's what you need to work you need to go well are there any things we need to sort out or do we just all need to realise that tolerance is in itself an important shared value and that sometimes other people are going to do things we don't like and we just have to sit back and let them get on with it. I'm sort of hearing quite a lot coming through in your conversation that sounds a bit like classical liberalism. I've seen you describe yourself as a libertarian. Uh, unpack a little bit more, A kind of if you if you have a political philosophy, what would it be? I, I am pretty libertarian. Um, I mean, I come from a, a tradition on the left. And I mean, I used to run around with the anarchists when I was at school and college. And a surprising number of people who I've had in this podcast <laughs> have an anarchist or communist teenage phase. I did not know this was such a common thing. What did you do when you were a teenager? Lots of drama. Jazz hands. <laughs> That's why I just joined in singing with you when we burst into song with these microphones. No, I'm not a political animal. I'm a, I'm a story. I love. I'm a storytelling person, and I'm interested in stories, and not just fictional stories, but all stories. So my background's in the media and uh, and that kind of thing, and I'm fascinated with politics because of what it says about us and the way we treat each other. But I don't feel any tribal allegiances. Well, no, I don't. I have no kind of party affiliations or anything. Uh, I, I I kind of never have had really. I mean. I have voted and I have flirted around with different parties in my youth, but none of them really hit the spot for me. And and I suppose I've always felt that, for me, it's about getting stuck into public debates and honestly trying to work out what I think is right and argue for it rather than getting involved in party politics. I mean, I don't... <laughs> to be honest, I don't have the stamina for it. I see people who are, are actually politicians that I, I couldn't, I would, I would die from lack of sleep if I yeah. tried to do what you do. They work so hard and they deal with such opposition from everywhere all the time. Well, I think I wouldn't mind that so much because, you know, I, I will get stuck into an argument because I like the, I like the sense that by arguing we're getting closer to something that is useful and important. But yeah, the actual, and also I think being involved in party politics means you do have to compromise and you do have to go, this is not what I believe, but we won't, we won't get it through unless we compromise to this. So I've come for the easy option really. Um, yeah, no, I, so I do have my instincts of libertarian because as I said earlier, I just think that it's, it's a kind of fundamental sacred to me that people should as much as possible be free to choose their own lives. Um, I'm not a fundamentalist, absolutist libertarian because I think we also have to live together and that as long as there is democracy, 
then we can make laws to govern ourselves. But in general, if somebody wants to make a law to limit what people can do, I would say, well, you know, why? <laughs> What's the justification for this? Uh, outside of, you know, obvious things like killing people yeah. and, um, and, stealing, and um, stealing things. Yeah. And, and apart from that, you see, I would still say I was broadly on the left in that I'm interested in power relations and the people with less power, whether it's economic or political, trying to, uh, Trying to get them in, get them in the door a bit, yeah. give them a bit, give them a bit more power. Really, I mean, I think that's the fundamental. And any politics that ignores that, I think, is fanciful. And I'm definitely not of the left tradition that says, "Well, we must do things on the behalf of the working classes because they don't know any better." So we must steward them and shepherd them and tax their sugary drinks and save them for themselves. Uh, like, well, we could just give them more power and see what they want to do themselves. <laughs> really old-fashioned in that yeah. sense, really yeah. old-fashioned. Yeah, so that's that's my kind of my political orientation. But I, I think that I think that mix is a bit odd to people sometimes. Yeah. I think people sometimes assume that I will think one thing and then find that I actually think something else. Well, that's part, partly why you're here. When <laughs> Most people that I invite on the podcast is because I've encountered something they've read or said and thought, oh, sounds like an interesting brain. Uh, that's not someone just spouting a party line. So tell me about the things that you have been involved in public debates on. And I seem at least a thread around maths and statistics and data and science. What drew you towards that? And why do you think it's important to talk about it well? That it, it's kind of two things. About ooh, seven or eight years ago, probably, I started to notice that there was a lot of statistics in the media and everyone was suddenly using infographics and bar charts and graphs. And around the same time, in fact, I had recognised in almost a furtive way that I really liked maths. Having done it, I did it at school, did it A-level uh, and not since. And I was finding myself... What did you go on to, did you go on to further study? Uh, yeah, I studied film and drama with art. So, yeah, that was, and then I went off into, uh, cir well, technical theatre, circus, impro, stand-up comedy, writing, uh, and then kind of came to science by the back door, really, because I just, a lot of the comedy I was doing suddenly seemed to trip over science, so I started doing comedy about science. Um, <laughs> and then I'd hang around with scientists for so long, people thought I was a scientist, and they kept saying, so you're a scientist, Amanda, and I have to go, I'm, I'm not, actually, I've just been... Hanging around with them. This is a science groupie. Uh, it's an able groupie. No, that's uh, sorry. It's a total obscure group theory joke. Um, Someone somewhere is laughing <laughs> as they listen. <laughs> I don't think I even made it right. Uh, but yeah, so about eight years ago, I noticed that everyone was really into statistics suddenly. And I, I also, having realised that I actually missed the maths, had started studying maths with the Open University. And so I had this this double thing that, the mathsy part of me was going, oh, great, lovely, lots of graphs. How nice, because <laughs> I love a good graph. But then the other bit of me was going, but this is weird, because I know you, most of you don't love maths the way I do. So why are you suddenly so into all these graphs and statistics? This is quite interesting. And so I started looking at this and thinking, there's something really interesting going on here. People are looking for a kind of authority in the numbers and a kind of certainty in the stats which is fictitious. I mean, you know, I, I do love stats. I finally scraped a maths and stats degree last year and I'm... Congratulations. Oh, thank you. I'm a fellow of the Royal Statistical Society. So, so I really like that 
But I was kind of looking going, I don't think, I think everyone's getting a bit caught up in this without, re- not not because of what you can actually do with stats and learn from stats. I think. It was the time of kind of evidence-based policy as a yes. big headline move, wasn't it? Exactly. It was exactly that. It's let's, you know, show us the evidence, show us the numbers. And then the same thing started happening with big data. I started seeing this phrase around and thinking, oh, right, interesting. So that's like the same, but with powerful computers on top. Uh, this is very interesting because, again, people are getting very excited about it. And I thought, well, is is it – I mean, the, you know, the maths is very clever. It's really clever and very exciting. But, again, I don't think that's why people are getting excited about it. Certainly people who are not using it themselves yeah. but are – you know, looking to it as a kind of solution for things. So that was when I started looking at it because I, I thought this is a very interesting social phenomenon and I want to find out what it can actually do. And and there are things about it that are really exciting and we're certainly just scratching the surface of what we could do with it. But there is this other social thing that is looking for solutions for things in an age when you know, political solutions seem... People have just lost faith in the idea that you can change things with politics. Uh, morality is, well, it's, I don't think it's even contested. It's not contested enough. It's like, oh, oh, but that's morals and we yeah. don't really do this anymore. Just, yeah. uh, I mean, I think it's quite interesting. I don't know what you think about this, but people don't talk about morals. They talk about ethics. So I used to work on the moral maze and I used to say to people, please, can you use the actual M word? And I'd be forcing them to make a moral argument. And they'd say, well, the evidence shows. And I'd say, what do you think? Like move me from the is to the ought because the is is safe or it's not. You know, we like to think that it's authoritative and objective, but uh, the evidence isn't unfortunately as reliable as that. Tell me what you think we should do uh, and make a moral argument and it's not in our training you know in in public debate that feels very vulnerable because you sound people assume that you're kind of ideologue or a headbanger when actually we all have it we just try and hide it very often what we think the world should be like yeah exactly and and i think that's the appeal of big data and stats and evidence is that you you just there is no argument to be had Here's the data. It's, that gives you the answer. And even more so because you get computers involved and so they're doing things you don't really understand. So you think they must be cleverer than you. And and it's also it's so wonderfully objective. And who could disagree with that? Because it's from a computer and therefore yeah. it's clearly objective, which yeah. clearly it totally isn't. We, made the <laughs> we, we made the computer. We chose the data. The data that goes in is data from the past, which is probably part of the problem. Uh, yeah, there's all sorts of reasons to be wary of it, especially I think in social situations. I think there are lots of uses of big data where it's about engineering and science and nature and there's really, you know, we should be doing much more of it. But the urge to use it to understand people and predict what people will do and then nudge and determine what people will do, I think we should really think about carefully because we're outsourcing decisions to machines. And that means we're kind of trying to outsource our moral decisions to machines. I mean, as you say, we're not actually because the machines are machines that we've built and programmed. But I mean, you know, the phrase deus ex machina, the god from the machine, where at the end of the play, the, the mechanical chariot flies in with the god on it and the god makes everything fine, is... I, I think a myth for today, it's that idea that if we build a clever enough machine, it will give us all the answers. Yeah. And even, I mean, the singularity, the idea that you build the machine that's clever than us yeah. and it 
solves all the world's problems is yeah. absolutely that. It's like, oh, it's the 21st century. We've got a God-shaped hole. Yeah. Let's build a machine that can fill it. It's like, really? You think the answer to world hunger is build a machine that's cleverer than us, then it can solve world hunger. It's like, yeah. maybe we should have a go ourselves. Yeah. Ourselves? Yeah. It is, it is astonishing to me, you know, Homo Deus or infinite progress, all of these things that say why technology can solve hunger, poverty. And I come back to, it almost feels like a cliche, but it feels to me one of the one of the places where the wisdoms of religions have a very common sense thing to say, which is an almost nursery rhyme style, you know, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart and the what is going on inside us and our ability to... Uh, you know, marshal our resources and connect with each other and, you know, discipline ourselves and move past our instinctive tribal um, horridness, in, you know, uh, is is the hard work of a lifetime. And that's how individuals and societies grow up. And that is how things get better. And trying to outsource that to something beyond us does feel like a uh, unfortunate um, and overly optimistic uh, delegation of responsibility. You want to be more moral? We have an app for that. Yes. Yes, quite. Um, but you spend a lot of time talking about AI. So I, I, I get the impression that you're not a kind of, you're not hostile as into the concept in general, um, that you might uh, t- t- tell me about uh, your work around AI. I, no, I'm, I'm very excited about it, but mainly because, well, I mean, partly I suppose there are useful things it can do, certainly. And when people talk about AI taking over routine cognitive work in the same way that machines have taken over routine physical work. I, I think that is broadly in the long term a good thing. I feel like my whole day is routine cognitive work. Yes, that would well, be- yes. Well, it's, well, it's probably not that routine. You probably do a lot of things that a machine couldn't do. But I mean, it, it, what ex- one example I use is when I was a baby, I think, um, my mother worked for the gas board up in the northeast and her job was to transcribe things from gas bills into a big spreadsheet, by which I mean the physical sheet of paper with a pen uh it's not that long ago and she told me the story about how she says she sat there doing this for ages and ages uh and she transcribed this whole pile of bills this spreadsheet and then she took it next door to the manager's office and he looked at it and he went oh oh have you done that oh uh, we estimated those uh and he just put the whole lot in the bin <laughs> right in front of her and you just think, well, yeah, but you wouldn't have to do that now because all the bill stuff would have gone directly into a computer, so you could just get it straight out again. And probably a lot of those people would be on smart meters, so you wouldn't even have to send a meter read around. So I think we will go more and more with yeah. things like that and even routine things like can you go through this pile of papers for me and find all the ones that mention this? Machine could do that. Now, obviously, just as when machines took over physical work from humans, that will mean that some people will lose their jobs. And I don't think we should be complacent about that because there's no guarantee that those people will just then go on and get good jobs to replace those jobs. So I I think we as a society really do have to think about that and take some responsibility for it. But at the same time, I I think most of those are are jobs that those people won't miss, or at least they won't miss that part of it. There may well be things where instead of five people in a room doing a job most of which is routine, you get one person because all the routine bits are being done by a machine. Um, but my my family, my mum's side, her her granddad and great uncles and so on were dockers in Grimsby. And there's a statue in the docks in London, in, in Surrey docks, of a deal porter. There's a man bent over carrying long bits of timber on his back, I think 20-foot-long bits of timber, and he's, he's bent over carrying them. And my mum 
was down visiting me one day and saw this and said, oh, that's what your, your great uncle used to do. He was a deal porter and he used to go in the holds of ships and carry timber out. And that was his whole working day. And they had these silk pads that their wives would sew for them to go under their shirts because otherwise carrying this wood on your shoulder would draw blood. And now, of course, nobody does that because you have cranes and containerization. Now, a lot of people lost their jobs on the docks when that happened. And yeah, a lot of my mum's family are still in the same area and a lot of them don't have great but jobs. Do you think, so what's coming to mind really is, is, is an idea from, well, lots of uh, social thought, but uh, very explicit in Catholic, Catholic social thought about the dignity of work and about that kind of purposefulness. Mm. And also the community, the camaraderie. One of the things I worry about with developments in technology is the is the potential for it to concentrate power in the place where power is already concentrated, which is highly educated, westernized, in fact, largely male, um, white, often, you know, tech tech barons and others, whilst taking away the the dignity of work and some of those community networks from places that are already struggling. Um and the argument is made, you know, it's, it, it's progress or it adds to our convenience or some better arguments that you've just made about, you know, bullshit jobs, as they're sometimes called. Um, I have never yet been able to quite understand what is the problem that AI is trying to solve, that we would be pouring so much energy and resources into it when there seems to me to be other problems in the world that are more pressing. Well, the, there's nothing specific about AI that says it has to just make things more profitable. I mean, obviously... A lot of what, certainly a lot of what's described as big data is mainly used for efficiency. So you do the same thing, but you do it more efficiently. And in some cases, you do slightly less, but you do it more efficiently, uh, which is not in itself a bad thing, because if it's doing it more efficiently, that means more time and more resources for other things. But it's also not a not a life-changing, well, I mean, you know, okay, but it, it, it's not revolutionary. But it can also be used for really amazing things. I talked to a guy in Southern California called... Professor Eamon Keogh, who was using big data to look at insects and building up a worldwide insect database using the most brilliant kind of portable technology he designed using Lego and lasers and photodiodes, little portable insect traps that work with light gates because insects probably can't see red light. So it flies through this laser light gate and the interruption that its wings make in the, in the light gets turned into an electrical pattern which is a direct reflection of the vibrations of its wings. So what you get out again is the pure sound of its wings with no background noise. And from this and a few other things like where is it and what time of day is it, you can identify the species of insect, often whether it's male or female, which matters because the female mosquitoes are the ones that bite you and spread disease, even whether it's already had a blood meal. And therefore, do you want to trap it and analyse the blood and see what it bit and what diseases it's carrying and all this? Uh, and he's doing that using big data. So the potential of that for tracking the spread of insects that might be carrying Zika virus or even implementing things like... There's a, there's a programme I can't remember the name of, but you're basically releasing... Oh, yes, yeah, the... SIT, sterile, sterile insect technique, where you basically release sterile insects into the wild and they mate with the existing insects and therefore the population plummets and suddenly you have hardly any mosquitoes there and they don't spread the disease and so on. So I, I think that kind of thing is amazing. There's no reason why we can't use AI to do those kinds of things and really solve human problems. Yeah. Uh, so this is what I mean by... We, I don't think we should be complacent about potential impact on communities. I mean, I, 
I think the question of the dignity of work and the question of who has the power are slightly different questions, but both good questions. Who has the power? Obviously, if a few people own the technology, that's making all the money. That's like, oh, <laughs> oh, is this capitalism where people own the means of production? I think it probably is. Uh, so... Yeah, that's that's a kind of like a familiar political problem, really. The dignity of work thing, I, I think it's genuinely true that we want to be productive, we want to contribute to the world, and we want to act with other people in a meaningful way. I think that I think that's a very human thing. And this is why I don't buy the universal basic income idea, because that just seems to me that the people who will have all the power and all the money go, Oh, this is terrible. Let us let us pay you an allowance. Uh, so that you don't starve to death and can buy some of our stuff. Uh, it's like, well, no, that's that's not really. <laughs> Sorry, that's not sufficient. I think I think we all want to be involved in the project of of society and making the world. I'm going to ask one last question, which is, if you had one recommendation for how we could improve our public debates, particularly across divides of uh, belief or non-belief or political divides, what would it be? Is this where I'm allowed to say you should listen to my forthcoming series, How to Disagree on Radio 4? Oh, <laughs> that is, uh, it's, well, it's a five-part series on how to disagree because my feeling is that disagreement is good because by disagreeing we have better ideas, but that we're, we are mostly doing it very badly. We're doing it in a way that just polarises and embeds us exactly in, in our ideas, whereas the whole point really is that we should at least have our ideas challenged because even if we end up thinking we're still right, we will have hopefully better reasons for thinking we're right and be able to make better arguments by understanding uh, why other people don't agree with us. So I, I think, I suppose, yeah, if I had to have one tip, bear in mind I'm still making this series, so I may have a better answer by the end of it. But at the moment, my my one tip would be stop and think about why does the other person think what they think. and. You know, you could ask them, actually. <laughs> Just ask them is, is not a bad tip. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and in a way it doesn't come across as sarcastic. Okay. I, I've actually, I know some people have had really awful times on social media and I touch wood haven't. And there have been times on Twitter where people people can be quite, am I allowed to say arsy? Yes. Is that, yeah, quite arsy. Not worse than that, but quite arsy. And usually, you know, I will respond to them somehow in a way that gets us to a place where we probably still disagree, but we're a bit warmer towards each other. Yeah. I'm not quite sure why this happens, but I think it's because I will leave a bit of room for humour and for them to tell me more about why they think what they think, uh, you know, without going off into a, a huge four-hour interchange. <laughs> But I do think it's possible, actually, even on Twitter, to have exchanges that are civil and fruitful and polite and leave you at least respecting each other as human beings. I would wholeheartedly agree. And thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. Our producer is Hussein Kazvani, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd love to hear what you think. Please do get in touch via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or sacredpodcast at gmail.com. Tell us what you loved, what you hated, and who you think we should talk to next. We'd also be really grateful if you'd rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. 
and spread the word to your friends. Thanks very much. 